It's only a kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle. A run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. Welcome to the Mini Break, your daily podcast for the biggest storylines, results, and controversies from the tennis world. Today is Wednesday, January 26th. We do apologize for the delay in releasing this podcast. We are well aware of the fact that we're a little bit behind on our recaps of the 2022 Australian Open. That's because we've got some exciting news here at Cracked Rackets HQ, and I know many of you listeners are tuned into this show to hear about the latest developments happening on the Pro Tour, but for those of you college tennis fans tuning in, we are thrilled to announce that we will be broadcasting parts of the 2022 ITA kickoff weekend, the ceremonial start of the college tennis season. We've got some fantastic regions locked in over the course of Friday, Saturday, Sunday, and Monday. We hope all of you listeners will tune in. We hope those of you more inclined to follow the pro tennis action will give college tennis a shot. A, you see countless players from the college ranks go on to have success on the pro tour. Case in point, Danielle Collins still alive in the semifinals of the 2022 Australian Open. She's a two-time NCAA singles champion on the men's side. Countless examples, Kevin Anderson, John Isner most prominently, but of course what Cam Norrie, a former TCU Horned Frog, did last season. Mackie McDonald, Marcos Giron, Jensen Brooksby was at Baylor for a hot second. I can go on and on and on if you'd like about the countless examples of former collegiate athletes who are going on to have success in the pro ranks. You can see many of those future stars potentially compete this weekend in the ITA kickoff weekend. All of the best schools in play. We have many of the best matchups on our stream. Give it a chance. We'll be broadcasting all day and it's the perfect cure for your tennis hangover, right? We've all been tuned into the endless action in Australia. That action winding down as we reach the semifinal stages. If you're still looking for your tennis fix, ITA kickoff weekend is the place to go. Again, it will all be broadcasted on our Cracked Rackets YouTube channel. I imagine we'll be going somewhere like 10, 11 a.m. Eastern time until 7, 8 p.m. Pacific. So buckle in. Hope you'll come join us. That should be extraordinarily exciting. As such, we've been in the planning stages for that ITA broadcast. We've had to do our ITA kickoff weekend shows as well. And as such, we're a bit behind on our mini break broadcast. I do apologize for that fact. We're going to make up for today. Gil Gross going to join me later this evening. That will be released this evening as well to help me recap day 10 and just reset where things stand as we look at to the, excuse me, the home stretch of the year's first Grand Slam event. And of course, that's what I want to talk about on today's show. How did we get to the semifinal stage? On this show, I want to recap day nine and talk about what has ultimately been, you know, the two different stories that have unfolded in the men, on the men's and women's side. You look here on the top half of the draw, in particular on day nine, both men's matches going the distance, five set thrillers, both women's matches, efficient, dare I say dominant straight set performances from our two players that advanced very different days for the men's and women's singles competition. But we're down to four matches, so I can recap them all. And that's what I want to do. I want to talk to Nadal Shapovalov. What was 
Certainly our strangest match on the day. Rafa managing to survive. He almost blows a two-sets-to-love lead. Looks like Shapovalov has all the momentum. Nadal breaks to start the fifth, ultimately advances to another Australian Open semifinal. How did he do it? We will explore that. Where did things go wrong for Denis Shapovalov? I want to explore that as well. What do I make of all of the brouhaha nonsense Shapovalov brought on the court, whether it was the complaints about Rafa's shot clock or service clock, excuse me, violations or the medical timeouts, the preferential treatment he thought Rafa was uh, receiving? We can talk about all of that on today. I obviously want to focus on the tennis, but I want to talk that match. Berrettini, Monfils. Is Matteo Berrettini now the surest thing from a performance standpoint on the ATP Tour? I'm going to make the case today for why the answer to that question might very well be yes, of course, on the women's side. Ashley Barty, dominant, dominant, dominant. That's the only word we can use at this point to describe her performances at the 2022 Australian Open. She's yet to lose this season into another Grand Slam semifinal, losing just two games to Jess Pegula. How did she do it? We'll talk about it on today's show. And then, of course, Madison Keys. How real is this Madison Keys resurgence? What is allowing her to blow through number four seed Barbara Krejcikova and reach another Grand Slam semifinal in her career? We can talk about that. I want to talk about not only the serve, uh, which is obviously clicking and has always clicked for Madison Keys, but the other elements of her game that we've already explored this week, but I want to talk about further here to talk about again what was truly a dominant performance, her finest in my opinion of the season over Barbara Krejcikova. That's the schedule for this podcast. Those four matches, we'll get to the other four matches in our quarter of final round on our second podcast on the day. We're going to focus on the men's in particular in that podcast with Gil, but of course I also want to talk about the drama that was Sviantek uh, taking on Kaya Kanepi, Danielle Collins, of course, with a dramatic at first, or, you know, complicated at first, but ultimately dominant win over Alizé Cornet. We will explore that later today. Gil Gross joining me. We're playing catch up on today's mini break podcast. Of course, again, for all of you listeners looking for that ITA kickoff weekend coverage, we recorded our women's kickoff weekend preview. You can go watch that on our Crack Rackets YouTube channel. Super producer Daniel Westoff killed it absolutely killed it with the graphics for that show. I think it's very much more enjoyable as a visual product, but of course, you can go listen to that podcast right now on our Great Shot podcast feed as well. Of course, again, before we get into today's show, as you know, each and every podcast, I want to thank all of you listeners for continuing to tune in to all of our coverage of the 2022 Australian Open, whether it be the recaps, whether it be our GSP aces of the day where I offer my picks, my previews for each day's action as well. The numbers look great, and that's a testament to all of you. We appreciate all of you who have you know, to, uh, chimed in and been a part of our conversations on social media. We appreciate all of you who have shared these episodes with your friends. It means the world to us. It's why we do this each and every day. It's why we will continue to go daily throughout the course of the 2022 season. Yeah, you know, there's, there's non-Grand Slam events, as you fans know, happening all year long. And whether it's ATP WTA Tour, whether it's the fantastic Challenger Action, which we recap every Monday on our Great Shot podcast feed, and we We'll start covering more here moving through the season. In fact, tomorrow, I'm talking Columbus Challenger. It's happening, folks. I apologize. I Why would I apologize? It's just that time of the tournament. We now have some more space at the back half of these shows. Not going to do it today, but come on. Kozlov versus Dom Stricker. You think I don't have my eyes on that match? You think I can't follow seven things at once? You have to if you're covering professional tennis. 
All of those things we'll explore later on in the week. But again, the reason we're able to do that is because of the support we get from all of you. Of course, we also get fantastic support from our Patreon family and from our friends over at Tennis Point who are providing the latest and greatest equipment at the lowest prices to tennis fans everywhere. If you need to update your swag moving on to the court uh, going forward, you can do so. Go to tennis-point.com. Use our promo code CR15. You'll get 15% off all sales items free Two-day shipping on all orders exceeding $75. Best of all, a free can of Wilson Extra Duty Tennis Balls. Tennis-Point, simple, not the spelling, tennis-point.com. The promo code is CR15. And by the way, come on, it's new racket season, right? All the new paint jobs are out at the 2022 Australian Open. Certainly someone's racket caught your eye throughout the course of these past two weeks. Or maybe you've just earned those new shoes, you know, your New Year's resolutions kicking in. You're more athletic than you were a month ago. It's time to update the gear you're wearing to reflect that fact. Maybe you've gone from a size large to a size medium, a medium to a small, or maybe a medium to a large because you've bulked up whatever it may be all the latest and greatest, all in one location, tennis-point.com. Promo code is CR15. We're eight minutes in, folks. Let's talk some tennis. I think we have to start with Rafa, right? When you look back on day nine, that's the match we remember most fondly. Rafa drama, no doubt about that. And it looked like it may be routine at first, but then slowly he starts to cramp physically. And, you know, Denis Shapovalov continues to apply a pressure, pressure after pressure on point after point. But ultimately, it's the veteran guile of Rafael Nadal that helps him win out a 6-3-6-4-4-6-3-6-6-3 victory over Denis Shapovalov. This was a pretty straightforward match. Five breaks in total. Three from Rafa in the three sets he won. Two from Shapovalov in the two sets he won. You have to give some credit to Denis Shapovalov who faced some pressure serving for the set. I believe this was at the end of the third set, fourth set. I forget which one it was. But he goes down 30-40, you know, hits a big plus one serve down the tee that opens up the big plus, uh, excuse me, out wide that opens up the big inside out plus one forehand for a winner. And that combination was critical to Denis Shapovalov's success over the course of this match. And I mentioned this after his victory over Alex Virev as well, but you could tell Shapovalov made a concentrated effort to take every ball that landed within the service box early and on the rise and try to use that as a ball to come in behind and put pressure on his top 10 opponents in Zverev and Nadal. And to some extent, it worked for Denis Shapovalov in this match. You look for Shapovalov, he played extraordinarily aggressively. 20 aces on a 58% serve, uh, first serve percentage. He's going after that first serve. He knows that's the critical shot against Rafa Nadal because if Rafa is able to start the point at neutral, Rafa's eventually going to get to offense and he's just so disciplined in his baseline combat combinations that neutral is not good enough against Rafael Nadal. So I do think that 58% serve percentage while low is indicative of Shapovalov's recognition that he needed to play aggressively, that he needed to go after the plus one shots and 20 aces. He executed well. Now, certainly some of those down the home stretch of that fourth set when Rafa uh, ailing physically and, you know, letting some balls get by him. But Shapovalov won 73% of his first serve points. He created more breakpoint chances for himself than Rafa. He goes 27 of 44 at the net, which is only a 61% conversion rate, but again, is indicative of the aggressive brand of tennis trying to impose his will against Rafa, which you have to try to do, that Shapovalov was able to employ in this match. Now, he hits 53 winners against 51 unforced errors. That unforced error count, certainly higher than you'd like it to be. 
And I think it, when you actually looked at at the script of some of those unforced errors, that 51 number may be a bit generous and it doesn't speak to the unforced errors Shapovalov produced in critical moments that just killed him down the home stretch or, or in critical moments of this match. But 53 winners against Rafael Nadal, 51 unforced years. Even if you take away the serves and, you know, the 20 aces, 33 winners, and you take away the five double faults against 46 unforced years. I actually think that's much more indicative of the ground stroke performance of Denis Shapovalov, but the aces are free points as well, and that is what kept him in this match, his ability to win free points, his ability to play plus one tennis. You look at the rally stats in this match, Denis Shapovalov, plus seven in the zero to four shot rallies against Rafa, plus seven against perhaps the most disciplined serve plus one player in tennis history. Just again, his ability to, although it's really serve plus two because it's first serve wherever he goes, first forehand to the open court, second forehand to the other side of the open court, you know, move you around. That's the patented Rafa combo. Shapovalov's plus one was just as effective in this match. And again, that mindset for him of taking that ball early on the rise, and it was, no, no, no. So he was serving, it was for the record, to go back and clarify, see, you got to love this. This is why I try to podcast the day after, because your memory is that just that much more clear. You don't have other matches clouding your head. Shapovalov, 5-4, four, four, he's up. He breaks Rafa to win the third set, 30-40. He takes a backhand on the rise, hits it for a cross-court winner to secure the set. If Denis Shapovalov starts landing, he hit two on the, or I believe three on the rise backhands, by the way, throughout the course of that 30, 40 point to break. If Denis Shapovalov starts landing that ball more frequently, for lack of a better term, the rest of the two are f***ed. Because Denis Shapovalov has a combination of explosiveness, longevity, fitness, creativity, fluidity, just, you know, all the T's, you know, that the characteristics you're looking for. He can do so many different things on the court, and this is not a revelation. Anyone who has watched Shapovalov play over these past five years is well aware of the talent he possesses, but to see him execute over these past two matches which with such rigorous discipline, even when the shots went awry, it was a testament to Shapovalov's mindset entering the match. Now, from a fundamental standpoint— there was a lot of sloppy tennis. I know I'm glass half fulling his performance there. There were, you know, that 51 unforced error count or whatever it was for Denis Shapovalov. Yeah, 51 unforced errors. That feels low. Like that feels like they're giving some credit to Rafa for some cross court forehands that, yeah, opened up the court for him. But that Shapovalov should have, uh, should not have shanked the forehand on, or should not have tried to blast down the line, or you know, again on the return of serve in particular. You look for uh, Shapovalov. He's given six unforced errors on the return in this match. I think that's incorrect. I think that's being a little bit generous. And you have to give him credit. He certainly capitalized on the Rafa second serve and, you know, 11 double faults for Rafa in this match. That's uncharacteristic. Rafa only wins 46% of his second serve points uh, given that fact. I thought Shapovalov did a good job being aggressive with his return of serve, but it's the spots he's picking. He doesn't have to, you know, for him, being aggressive is blasting a ball big down the line and trying to hit it for a winner, not blasting the ball with depth and pace and just the heaviness of his shot to set up the next ball in the rally. To him, aggression is hitting winners. When aggression needs to be about setting up that, you know, that plus one ball, that next opportunity, and I think he does that really well with the serve, still needs to work on doing that as he's crafting points within the rally, and that's where Rafa killed him. You look overall in this match, you know, First of all, that Rafa kept it within 10 in the plus one category with how well Shapovalov was executing. Rafa matched him essentially in that category. And then Rafa plus 20 
in the five plus shot rallies in this match. And it did feel like even if Rafa wasn't hitting a plus one ball, it was either, you know, roping Shapovalov around the court for a couple of uh, balls until Shapovalov generated an error or whether it was on the return of serve, just getting the depth on that return needed to prevent Shapovalov from getting into his plus one play. It felt like if Rafa was able to extend the rally plus, uh, past that opening sequence, more often than not, Rafa was able to win the point. And again, sloppy execution from Denis Shapovalov in the biggest moment. He works his way back, 6-4 in the third set, works his way back, 6-3 in the third set, comfortable breaks, you know, in especially in that fourth set, early in that fourth set, and he's able to ride it out, and he's able to down 30-40, fight off a break point with a plus one forehand, and hold for that set, and have all the momentum, and see Rafa ailing, and then has his chances in that first Rafa service game of the set, but Rafa's able to hold, and you know, then Shapovalov gets broken right away to start number five, and that's just mentally. That's a mental blink for Denis Shapovalov. There's no ifs, ands, or buts about it. You played a sloppy game. Yeah, Rafa connected with a return or two, but the errors came off of Shapovalov's racket more so than any winners Rafa hit in that uh, love, in that one love service game for a loved one for Shapovalov serving in the fifth. And so, you know, again, you look from Rafa's perspective, 41 winners against 28 unforced errors, considering he couldn't move in the fourth set and considering the stomach ailment he had to fight through that 22 of 26 at the net and started incorporating serve and volley more as the match went on you look for him again 22 of 26 at the net in total three of three at the net in set number five but most importantly you know wins 75 percent of his first serve points and how frequently was he following that ball in and just you know getting an error from Shapovalov off of the return I mean, it was certainly concerning for Rafa that physically it did feel like he wore down as this match went on, and it just felt like Shapovalov couldn't land enough returns in the court. But uh, for against Rafa in set number five to get himself to that breakpoint opportunity, and again, credit to Rafa's execution, which he may not be physically what he was in 2009, 2010, but he plays more efficient tennis in 2022 than he ever has in his career. Every choice he makes, so disciplined, so calculated, and his willingness to now, the moment he sees slice for an opponent, you know, jump into the net and take that ball early on the rise or out of the air, it's an impressive version of Rafael Nadal. And was I a bit worried after our, you know, my round of 16 podcast where I mentioned the fact that Rafa, you know, how impressive he looked. And I was like, yep, I think Rafa now is absolutely a top contender to win the title. He almost loses this match. I do wonder physically because, you know, the good news for Rafa now, and let's talk about that quickly. He gets two days off, right? Doesn't have to compete uh, to, on Wednesday night, Thursday in Australia because this is the point of the draw where they play the women's semifinals on back-to-back days for, uh, for one half of the draw, and then they get a day off before the Saturday final. Meanwhile, the men who play their quarterfinal matches on Tuesday get two days off before playing the men's semifinals on Friday. That's a major benefit for Rafa, who, again, at a point in the third set of this match, stopped moving. Uh, fourth set of this match stopped moving, and you could just tell physically he didn't have the, the the ability to track down the plus one ball and extend rallies any further because he had some sort of abdomen, uh, ab, ab, abdomen, sorry, took me a second, abdominal was the word I was looking for, abdomen issue uh, that ultimately takes some tablets for, seemed to work out at least a bit better in that fifth set, but you know, again, for Shapovalov, and this is where we can talk about the extracurricular, 
I understand why it was bothering him because I do think it's – and this isn't an anti-Rafa point to say. Rafa takes a long time in between points. Like have you ever watched a Rafa match? All of the ticks that he has, whether it's the hair comb, harem comb, shoulder, shoulder, butt, butt, cheek, cheek, do, thing, you know, pull, pull, all these different things on the shirt – it takes him a good 12 seconds to just get through all of his ticks. And then, you know, again, there's the fact that he, you know, the ball bouncing and just the discipline and just the the, bre- the breathing and, you know, the towel waves and all of these different things. Rafa and, and the serve clock do not have the friendliest relationship. And Shapovalov was simply pointing that out. And, you know, do I love the manner with which he did it, that he continued to let that fact harbor on him and that he continued to chat about it with the chair umpire and to say, you know, it's biased, it's rigged towards Rafa or whatever the terminology he was. That's not what he was meaning. You know, again, that's a spur of the moment passion sort of thing, obviously. I don't think he's insinuating a deeper conspiracy theory. And if he is, I guess shout out to him for adding to the intrigue, right? Tennis Twitter needed another topic to get its flames going. Um, But, you know, again, that's frustration for Shapovalov manifesting itself. And I do I enjoy that as his expression of frustration? No, of course not. You'd love to see him find a way to channel that into his tennis somehow. But I think he did, right? He won sets three. He won set four. And, you know, again, he was asked in the press conference after the fact, did you notice Rafa was physically ailing? How did that impact you? And he said, no, it's a five-set match. We're all physically ailing. Yeah, I noticed Rafa took a medical timeout. But no, that didn't impact me mentally. Now his actions on the court may have suggested otherwise. But you can understand, especially on the time thing, with Rafa physically ailing and just with the physicality Shapovalov's trying to bring to each point and that he is young and that he is so explosive and that relentless aggression, that's how he wears his opponents down. You can understand why Shapovalov says, hey, I'm playing by the rules. This guy should play by the rules as well. I, you can understand why the thought came to mind. I do very much enjoy that Rafa came to the uh, up to the net and tried to, you know, again, uh, tried to tried to neutralize the situation, tried to just, you know, quell the conflict. And you know, again, that's the maturity of Rafa. That's Rafa being Rafa at his finest. At the same time, you can understand the frustration of Shapovalov given the timing of it. Him down a set and a break in set number two. A lot of that frustration, again, a manifestation of the scoreboard pressure that he was feeling, but that's all I make of it. Like, again, is Shapovalov going to remember this three weeks from now or the next time he comes up against Rafael Nadal? Are any of us going to remember it the next time he take goes up against Rafael Nadal? Maybe, because I just did three minutes on the show on it, but that's the only credence I'm sort of, you know, I want to give to it. And, you know, credit to Denis Shapovalov. What an excellent start to his 2022 season for him to help lead Canada to the ATP Cup title. And I know ATP Cup's not the biggest title in the world, but for Shapovalov during that stretch of time, you know, because he didn't play well down the home stretch of last season, for him to, you know, get a win over Struff in three sets and then beat Sefillian, beat Carino, boost in straights in that final. And then, you know, uh, an adverse first week for him where, you know, he did not play well in his first round against Laszlo Jir, still wins that in four, did not play well against Sun Wukwan, wins that one in five. Played better against Opelka to win that in four, and then played decisive. His best match of the tournament in the round of 16 to get by Zverev. And you look for uh, Shapovalov now quarterfinals or better in the at, at a slam in the last three seasons for him. He has slowly. It's been more incremental than we would have hoped, but slowly and surely found the consistency to match his physicality and athleticism that he has to be. And this is not a revelation, but he will be. 
a top 10 player at some point in his career, and he will always be a factor at these Grand Slams because his single match ceiling is high enough to challenge any of player, even the best in the world. But credit to Rafa freaking Nadal, man. I mean, for Rafa to advance here now when he clearly was physically ailing and you look for him in his career now, I believe this is Australian Open semifinal uh, number, let's see, five, six, seven for him in his career. Just a casual seventh Australian Open semifinals. First for him since 2019 when he beat Tsitsipas before getting knocked out by Djokovic in the final. And I mean, look. Rafa next up has Matteo Berrettini, who he played at the U.S. Open semifinals in 2019. He won that match in straight sets. You look for Rafa now in his career. It's always just laughable, you know, all the stats you can find for Rafa, who's now won over 88% of his matches against lefties. I think 15 losses in ATP level matches. He's like 118 and 15 in his career now against lefties in ATP matches. You look for him overall in terms of Grand Slam semifinals. He's made this Grand Slam semifinal. Uh, for him, number 15 on hard courts, number 36 overall in his career. 36 Grand Slam finals, nine complete seasons of Grand Slam semifinals for Rafa Nadal. That's how you have to think of it. For nine years straight, he made the semifinals of every Grand Slam throughout the course of his career. I mean, come on now. Like, what are we doing here? And he's 28 and 7 in those semifinals. It's just. Uh, I mean, the fact that Rafael Nadal has put himself in this position when he wasn't healthy at the end of last season, and now he comes back, first tournament back, he wins a title to to start the year. Now you look for him. It hasn't been as difficult as a pathway as it could have been for Rafa, but, you know, again, straight sets over Garon, straight sets over Hanifman, four sets over Hachinov, straight sets over Manorino, now five sets over Shapovalov, two days off to rest up for his match against Matteo Berrettini, it's 20 apiece right now, 20 for Federer, 20 for Rafa, 20 for Djokovic, and of course the perspective Rafa shared in the press conference, why would I, you know, why would I, I'm not chasing Djokovic, I'm not chasing Federer, which of course is what you say publicly, but he says, I have 20 Grand Slam titles, that in itself is enough of an accomplishment, and of course I am just as in awe of them accomplishing that feat uh, as anything else, and yeah, of course, like he would like 21. Well, the op- opportunity has opened. Two days off heading into the semifinal for Rafa, and that quarterfinal round seems to always be over the years where physically, you know, sometimes you're able to get him in these Grand Slam events. You look for him, or at least at these hard court quarterfinals in the quarter, uh, you look for him over the years. The loss to Tsitsipas last season in the quarterfinal round, the loss to Team in the Australian Open quarterfinal round back in 2020 as well. He did it to Burdich in 2015, Ferrer 2011, you know, Gonzalez 2007, but at that point, that's a different Rafa. Point being, of late, this quarterfinal round is where you get him because he has played four consecutive hardcourt matches and he only has a day off between all of those three out of five sad matches. Now he's got two days off to rest up for a matchup against Matteo Berrettini where on paper, you know, how many times has Rafa played a lefty? who likes to hit big serves, hit a big forehand behind it and slice the backhand as his preferred modem. I mean, this is a match from a matchup perspective when Rafa you know, has to be licking his chops about things have opened up for him, at least tactically, in this tournament. And then, God willing, we get a rematch between he and Medvedev of that 2020, uh, excuse me, 2019 U.S. Open final. That was such a five-set thrill, and it would be fascinating to see this version of Nadal test by this version physically of Daniil Medvedev, Medvedev, who's grown so much more confident on his serve as well. But Rafa's in the final four. 
That is not what I expected entering this tournament. Of course, I thought Zverev would be there to test him in his in this round. Shapovalov certainly tested him. Neither guy played their best. Rafa able to advance. Now, I'm not going to spend 17 minutes on every match. I do think that was the funkiest one of the day and therefore the one I had to spend the longest time recapping. But let's just stick with the men's side here and, and discuss in Rafa's opponent, Matteo Berrettini, who, yes, from a matchup perspective, I just talked about it for Rafa. You think the slice backhand and the rigorous discipline of Rafa into that backhand corner, finding that spot on the serve, opening that corner up by changing direction with his plus one forehand, all of those things play in his favor, but... Is there a more sure thing right now than Matteo Berrettini on the ATP Tour? You know exactly what you're going to get from Matteo Berrettini match in, match out. Regardless of your game plan, if he's landing the first serve, if he has the opportunity to turn into his plus one forehand, he's going to play a lot of the match on his terms. And that's precisely what happened in his 6-4-6-4-3-6-3-6-6-2 victory. Beautiful scoreline, by the way. Over Gael Monfils, you look from Matteo Berrettini in the match, things were very simple. How did he win this one? 12 aces, 74% first serve win percentage on a 61% clip. He converted four of his 11 breakpoint chances, you know, fought off 13 of the four, uh, excuse me, fought off 11 of the 14 that he faced on the day. 21 of 29 at the net, 51 winners against 50 unforced errors. You look for him overall in this match. Matteo Berrettini plus 13 in the zero to four shot rallies in this one. He executed down the home stretch. It was that simple. The relentless pressure that he put on Gael Monfils in set one and two. And I had talked about this entering the match. I do think for Gael Monfils, it took him about an hour and a half, an hour, 45 minutes to get accustomed to the pace that Berrettini was playing at because as much success as Monfils has had throughout the early parts of 2022, you look at his draw wins over Green and wins over Kesmenovic. That's not the power tennis players that are Matteo Berrettini. And as such, I just... I, you know, I think it took him a second to adjust. I think he was playing seven feet behind the baseline, not stepping up into the court and, you know, decisively attacking that Berrettini backhand. And if Berrettini is going to cheat over on that at sign, fine. I'm going to take the ball early on the rise. I'm going to hit the ball to the deuce corner. Credit to you if you come up with some on-the-run forehand magic, which Matteo Berrettini did at times throughout the course of this match. But I'm going to put that pressure on you. You better come up with something magical because from a core positioning perspective, from a rally perspective, I am dominating and dictating the terms and that's what the that's the adjustment Gael Monfils made go watch this match go look at the core positioning for him in sets three and number four go look at you know again the breakdown by in in points how decisive he was on the plus one and how well he started serving Gael Monfils plus seven in the zero to four shot rally category in set number three that he won you look for him in set number four Monfils played Berrettini even in the zero to four shot category and still outplays him in the five plus shot rally categories. And I think just about every set that they played, Monfils stepped up his game, stepped up his level of aggression, started dictating, playing more decisively. That's how he flipped this match. But you could just see the combination of the energy it took him to step into the court, to get to that ball early on the rise, the effort it takes to turn into the shot, to put that sort of plus one pressure on Berrettini, Combined with the scrambling that he does in his, you know, modem of being six feet behind the baseline in the Berrettini return game uh, and when returning Berrettini serve and, you know, just trying to create breakpoint chances for himself, just ran out of juice a bit down the home stretch of that fifth set and just, you know, it just felt like the bubble bursts a bit at that start of the fifth set when Berrettini is able to secure a break and he races out to a four love lead in the set. 
Now, Monfils did a good job finding a second gear and, you know, finding a couple of holds and managing to slowly try to work his way back in that set. But credit to Matteo Berrettini, who, A, is just hitting through the backhand down the line better than he ever has before in his career. B, given the physical tennis that he's played, four sets over Nakashima and Kozlov in the first two rounds, five sets against Carlos Alcaraz, a sneaky physical and close three-set match against Carino Busta in the fourth round. Berrettini's pushed to five sets again, and he answers the question once more to be six foot five, six foot six, that thick physically, and just be able, again, from a stamina perspective, to do what he does. It, it's a really special combination. And, you know, even in this matchup against a returner of Monfils' quality of late, he makes 61% of his first serves, wins 74% of his first serve points, wins 51% of his second serve points. That's a dominant performance. That's doing your job on the serve over the course of a five-set match. And so, yeah, I think it's safe to say Matteo Berrettini, you knew even when he wasn't playing his best and was matched up against opponents who may be more dynamic physically and fluid physically and more dynamic from the baseline in Monfils, in Alcaraz, they just couldn't match his plus one power. And bringing that, you know, again, there's only, there's a finite number of players who have the combination of length, fluidity, and and while also possessing the sort of weapons needed to keep Berrettini on his back foot, while also being able to sustain all of that over the course of two out of three or three out of five sets, it's that much more difficult to beat Matteo Berrettini. And you look for Berrettini now, 44 and 13 over his last 52 weeks. That's a 77% win percentage. You look for him against opponents ranked outside the top 50. He's 22 and one. His one loss, a weird one, first round Monte Carlo, first round back on the clay for Berrettini, loses to Davidovich Fokina, you know, five and three. Other than that, 22 and one over the past 52 weeks. He's also 37 and four against opponents ranked outside the top 20 during this stretch of time. The only losses being Fritz, who ends up making the semifinals in Indian Wells and beats Berrettini round two, loses 7-6 in the third to Carlos Alcaraz, obviously got his revenge in the five sets here, then loses at ATP Cup, first match of the season to Alex Diemenauer, first match of the season. You can always write that one off. 37-4 against opponents who aren't in the top 20, who don't have that unique blend of an elite weapon, elite physicality, or somewhere close to in-between to hang with him, and you look for him even against opponents ranked 11-plus, 43-5. The only loss he had there was a 4-3 loss he took to Felix. Now, against top 10 opponents in his last 52 weeks, Matteo Berrettini, 1-8. But that's it. If you're not a top 10 player, you're not beating Matteo Berrettini. That's the story right now in his career, and that is why I think he is the surest thing right now in the men's game. You look for Berrettini as well, 103-44 and since the start of the 2019 season. That's obviously a set. I don't know why I said obviously that's a 70% uh, win percentage. He's holding 89% of the time. That number would be perennially top five. Now, the break percentage over the past three years, 18.9%, but the break percentage over the last 52 weeks, 20.3%. It's better. If you're holding top five, you know, he ranked 32nd, I believe, last season in break percentage. If he can get that number to 22, 23%, now you're talking about a guy who's the number one or two server on tour, and he's, you know, one of seven, eight players to be top 25 in both categories. I mean, we already know he is so, so elite on the serve that the rest of his game, you know, it can carry the rest of his game, but the rest of his game is catching up. And so, 
You know, the numbers say it. The eye tests say it. The results say it for Matteo Berrettini. You look for him 14 and 16 in his career at the Slams. Now 21 and 3 in his last 52 weeks. Those three losses, each being to Novak Djokovic in the U.S. Open, Wimbledon, and Roland Garros, respectively. I mean, what more do we want? From the Italian, who still, it's worth remembering, yeah, he's more of a veteran than others. 25 years old right now is Matteo Berrettini. You would argue maybe he's right now beginning the very start of the center of his prime, that three-year stretch where, you know, you'd expect to see him maximize his results. Given we don't know what we're going to see from Novak Djokovic this season, if in a Djokovic-less Wimbledon, Berrettini is the favorite. That's a crazy thought to say out loud, and I came into the season wondering, had we seen the ceiling for Matteo Berrettini? I think the answer to that question is no. Matteo Berrettini continues to be so impressive. Five-set victory over Gael Monfils. Now he's got the matchup with Rafa, and look, Tennis Abstract has Rafa just as a 56% favorite. They absolutely think Berrettini, with his recent results, have a chance in this matchup, and we'll explore that more with Gil later on tonight's show, but I mean— it's interesting. Now, you look for uh, Rafa in his career. I believe he currently does have the head-to-head advantage over Matteo Berrettini. And in fact, you look overall for Rafa now in his career against Berrettini. He's played Berrettini, I believe. Uh, let's see. Overall, and I don't want to be incorrect here, uh, they have played one time. He beat him. Yeah, 1-0 is Rafa. That one matchup, of course, happening. Yeah, at the 2019 U.S. Open when Rafa beats him in straights in the semis. It's a different Berrettini, though, all of these years later. And so I'm very excited for that matchup on, what will that be, day 12 of this event? Yeah, because that'll be the Friday night matches, or the Saturday night, I suppose the Thursday night matches Friday in Australia. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Uh, But for now, those were your men's matches. Two five-set thrillers. Again, that was the story on the day. Five-set thrillers and Berrettini ultimately able to get over the hump against Monfils. Uh, Of course, you look on the other side for the women's singles draw. A couple of blowouts on day number nine of this event. Let's start with a top seed, Ashley Barty, who I talked about extensively uh, after her fourth-round victory over Amanda Nisimova. She was that much more impressive in her victory over uh over at, uh Jessica Pagula, excuse me, six two, six love in round number uh in the quarterfinal round. And what was most impressive, Pagula goes up forty love in her opening service game. Forty love. And you think, you know, for most players, all right, you'll throw that one away. It's opening game of the match. Congrats, Pagula. You hold, I'll get you later. No, 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 no. Barty breaks that opening game of the match. And from there, I'm sorry, and I, I again I apologize for cursing here, but for lack of a better term, Pagula was f***ed from then in. Like, that match was over the moment Ashley Barty got that break because fundamentally there was nothing just Pagula could do consistently to hurt Ashley Barty. And Pagula said it better than any of us could in her post-match press conference. She said, yeah, when you look at Ashley Barty, she's just a little bit better at everything than everyone. And that's a pretty fair assessment. Like, 
she hits a better serve than just about everyone. Now, Naomi Osaka would like a, a chat before you say Ashley Barty has the best serve in the women's game. But yeah, she hits the serve better than 99% of the top 100. And yeah, she she moves better than 99%. There are a couple other players, you know, Von Drusova and Goffs of the world. They're in the conversation, but Ashley Barty's movement and perhaps her footwork, her ability to find inside-out forehands or inside-in for just find forehands in general on the outside of the court. I don't think there's anything more dangerous than Ashley Barty with time loading on the outside of the court right now uh, on a forehand in the women's game. You know, it's just the discipline of her on the backhand slice. She's going to get that ball back with pace and just neutralize whatever aggressive shot you hit, the passing shot she's willing to hit. If she gets you stretched in the outer third of the court, she is going to jump forward and take the ball either as a swinging volley or just straight up out of the air as a volley. Ashley Barty is in full command of her game right now, playing the best tennis of her career, and you look for her in this match. Makes 60% of her first serves, wins 81% of those first serve points, 56% of her second serve points, you know, 17 winners against 22 unforced errors, but just Pagula couldn't hurt her. Pagula, seven winners in this match against 26 unforced errors. Barty wins 50% of her receiving points throughout the course of this match. Just put immense pressure on Jess Pagula uh, from start to finish. And, you know, again, with all due respect to Jessica Pagula, who I think had a fantastic tournament and was not playing her best from start to finish in this event, yet still managed to defend her quarterfinal points and still managed to have, again, a, a very, very strong tournament overall. But you look for uh, Ashley Barty and just the run of success she has had here at the Grand Slams and just overall over these past you know three years, really, you go back to that 2019 season when, of course, she wins her first Grand Slam. Uh, it's just a remarkable run for Ashley Barty. It's sort of, I don't want to say an all-time run because I do think that term all-time run may be a bit overused, but it's right up there with the best of the best in uh, in women's tennis. I don't, it, you know, it's not quite the Serena tier or the you know the Graf, the Martina, the Everett tier of success, but that next tier, the Justine Ennins of the world, the Kim Kleisters of the world, maybe not quite Ennin, but she's definitely in that you know Kim Kleisters tier and that Venus Williams tier. When you look for Ashley Barty, forty and seven overall at the Slams since January 2019. 40 and 7 overall since January in 2019. Let's be clear, she missed the you know the two of the three grand slams in 2020 and yet you look at that stretch since the, uh, in the slam she's played so there there been what 7 plus 4 11 this is the 12th grand slam since the start of 2019. She's won two titles, she's made three semifinals, six quarterfinals, in 10, to- uh, 10 total majors. Now, by the way, four semifinals with her appearance here in Australia. Two titles, four semifinals, six uh, quarterfinals in 10 total majors, 22-2 and two overall in her last 24 matches. What are we doing here, folks? Like, the conversation is over. The world number one is Ashley Barty. And you look at the numbers for her this season, and it's a small sample size, but she's holding 95% of the time, folks. 95% of the time. The people who have broken Ashley Barty, Anisimova, breaks her once at the start of the second set. Barty gets that break right back, cruises to a straight set victory. Coco Goff breaks her three times in their opening match of the season. Barty's down a set and a break in that match, ends up winning the match. That's it. Three times by Coco Goff. Once by Amanda Anisimova. Now, if you're if you're Madison Keys, you think, well, at least it was Americans who broke her. Like I have that going for me. 
She's been broken by two players in the matches that she's played this season. And by the way now, for Ashley Barty here uh, to start the year, ten, uh, nine straight wins, excuse me, 9-0 and to start her season. 9-0! and She's been broken three times! 95% hold percentage. She's also breaking serve 45.5% of the time, which, by the way, would be... 9% higher than her career average and would be number two amongst all WTA top 50 players. So she's holding serve. 95%, by the way, would be the highest rate all time ever, ever, ever. Now, again, we're on hard courts right now. There's a lot of season to go. 95.2% would be the highest ever. She's breaking serve 45.5% of the time. She'd finish in the top two club. We've never had a top two club here at Cracked Rackets. She's the world number one. Like, even if the nerves set in, which they may, she's still, this is the one of the crowns. She doesn't have this New York. And, of course, to win in front of her home crowd would mean everything to Ashley Barty. She's made very, very clear uh, that fact. But, like, come on now. This is your world number one. And I think Jess Pagula, as well as she's played, she experienced that fact. Barty was just, as Pagula said, a little bit better at everything Barty is your overwhelming favorite. The percentages say it. DraftKings says it. Everyone says it. But let's just be clear. She's now also the overwhelming favorite in every event she enters. Unless Naomi Osaka's in the draw and it's a hardcore event. Then they're still co-favorites. But Barty is now the permanent 1A. Barty is 1A. And on grass, on clay, I don't care. She's been that good. Oh, and again, every number, every single number you turn to is indicative of that fact. One of the great three 40-year stretches we're going to see uh, from any player, Ashley Barty, putting that forward right now in the prime of her career. And again, 119-24 and 24 since the start of the 2019 season. 119-24. and 24. She's won 83% of her matches over a three-year stretch. Again, it's better than Kleister's. Like, it's better than the Venus Prime. Now, again, only two Grand Slam titles to show for it. I think she can rack up a couple more over the next few seasons. She gets to, what, six, seven? Is that the number we're anticipating now for Ashley Barty? That doesn't feel unreasonable. And now we're talking about all-time greats. Now we're talking about one of the 10 best players of the open era, if she can get into that realm. And let's be clear. She has the talent. She has the well-rounded game to do all of those things. So... Man, I don't think I raved enough about Ashley Barty there. That's a guarantee now that Madison Keys beats her. And by the way, despite all the success, Ashley Barty, 44-8 and eight at Grand Slams since the U.S. Open in 2018. She's facing her toughest foe to date and someone who now is unequivocally the second best player of 2022 thus far. And she has also won a title this season. Now, she lost in three sets to Kasekina in the first week of the year. But this is the best tennis of Madison Key's career, period, and the numbers indicate as much. She's breaking serve 45.4% of the time, which, by the way, 0.1% lower than Barty, uh, but would also rank second last season amongst top 50 players. She's holding serve 77.7% of the time, which isn't actually Barty good this season, but would have ranked third amongst top 50 players in the 2021 season and, like— Again, she would have been third and second in hold and break percentage. Top three club right now by the numbers for Madison Keys. And the eye test is reflective of that fact. Look at how well she's striking the return of serve. Look at, you know, the numbers in her match. A 6-3, 6-2 win over Barbara Krejcikova. 11 aces. Makes 72% of her first serves. Wins 77% of those points. Fights off seven of the eight break points that she faces. Come on now. Like, again. Come on. She was up 3-0 in the second set. 
you know, it seemed to have the foot on the gas, took it off for a second. Krejcikova gets one of the breaks back. Keys faces a break point up 3-2, fights it off with a big serve, plus one combo down the tee. And that was that. It's like when Keys needed the plus one, she found it. And you look at the stats from this match, they were even in the five-plus shot rallies. Madison Keys plus 21, though, in the 0-4. to four. She was that dominant on serve. And when you're that dominant on serve, you can afford to be aggressive on your return of serve. And Madison Keys was that aggressive on the return of serve. Just the depth on her backhand, the depth on her forehand. And Krejcikova's got that big loop on the forehand wing, right? Krejcikova didn't have any time to disguise her forehand or have the time to move around her forehand unless she landed a big first serve because that's how aggressive and how much depth was on the Keys ball. And just, again, Keys is moving so well right now. It's just even when Barbara Krejcikova did have a look at a plus one forehand, Keys was able to track it down and respond with depth or change directions. And again, when everything's rolling your way, you're going to go big down the line and take your chances. And so Madison Keys, 27 winners in this match against 21 unforced errors. Krejcikova, 12 winners in this match against 28 unforced errors. I don't know. I mean, Keys versus Barty. That's my title match. Like, whoever wins this is the unequivocal favorite entering the final. All due respect to Danielle Collins. All due respect to Iga Swiatek. These are your two players right now, Barty and Keys, playing the best tennis. And we've talked a lot about Madison Keys over the course of the week, so I don't want to repeat myself too frequently here on this ma- uh, on this on this podcast. But I mean, she's eleven and one here in 2022, has wins over Svitolina, Goff, Samsonova, Bedosa, Krejcikova. She's dropped just three sets, uh, excuse me, four or five sets throughout the course of the year. She two to Kasakina in her three-set loss, one to Samsonova, one to Goff, one to Chung Wong. That's it. That's it. Wong Chung, excuse me. That's it. That, like, straight sets over Bedosa, straight sets over Krejcikova. In her past two matches, she's won over 75%. Of her first serve points, she's been broken a grand total of two times by Bedosa and Krejcikova. If that's not indicative of how well Keys is striking the ball, how fluidly she's moving, how confidently she's playing, I don't know what else is. And you look for Madison Keys now. It's her fifth Grand Slam semifinal of her career. Now she's one in three in these semifinals. She beat Coco Vandeweghe back at the 2017 U.S. Open. Has lost to Osaka, Stevens, and Serena in straight sets in the other three. And all of her uh, Grand Slam semifinals have been straight set losses, but or straight set matches, but. There's just a freedom I think Keys comes into this match with, with of A, there were no pressure, no expectations for her coming into this tournament, coming into this season, right? Not that Madison Keys was an afterthought, but we thought, you know, with all these young faces emerging and with the Sabalenkas of the world, the Sakaris of the world, the Conteves, Bedosas of the world, that that second tier of contenders, which is probably what Madison Keys was at her best, never top tier the way a Serena was or a Halep was or you know, she's probably never quite on that level, but certainly in that second tier, one of those players when playing her best, as we've seen five times now in her career, can absolutely make a semifinal sort of run. But this feels different. Like there's a freedom to this of A, it was unexpected. B, there's no pressure on her entering this match. World number one, Ashley Barty, home crowd playing outstanding. This is just a heavyweight bout. And she looks ready and confident and playing with the sort of freedom that you need to win those sorts of matches. So it's hard to be anything but ecstatic for Madison Keys to get this sort of result. And remember, 26 years old, Madison Keys. She turns 27 at the end of February. I was born in 1995. She's born in 1995. We're not old. Like, prime. That's prime, baby, for Madison Keys. So it was an unexpected pathway to get here. 
But Madison Keys is playing the best tennis of her career, and so that makes that matchup, Keys versus Barty, so fascinating. Of course, Barty is the overwhelming favorite, according to our friends at Tennis Abstract, 75.4%, but that it's only 75.4% given the success of Ashley Barty is a testament to the level of Madison Keys of late. But with all that said, those were your day nine matches. And if you're to ask me, rank my most impressive performers, Barty one, Keys two, Berrettini three, Rafa four. Rafa survived more than anything. I suppose survival in itself is inherently interesting. But the Berrettini-Monfils match was actual tennis. Nadal Shapovalov was just a broken mess, um, even with the kernels of truth. A lot of plus one action in that match. Not that there wasn't Berrettini-Monfils, but it was a different sort of plus one action. And I just, again, point being... I'm not retracting. Barty, my most impressive performer. Key second most. Berrettini third and Dell fourth. That's going to be a really fun semifinal set of matches, though. Nadal, Berrettini, Barty, Keys. We'll be back to talk about it later. And again, we will be recapping day 10 of this event with Gil Gross later this evening. You can expect that podcast on this mini break feed, of course. GSP Ace of the Day preview podcast to preview day 11 at the Australian Open. Women's semifinals. Keys versus Barty. Collins versus Fiontech. We'll be back on that show later today as well to talk about that. And of course, if you missed any of our coverage of the 2022 Australian Open, you can catch up on it all on our website, crackrackets.com. If you need the more immediate updates, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, we are at Crack Rackets. You want to message me directly, I am at A.L. Gruskin. A shout out as always to our super producer, Daniel Westoff, for the of an editing job he does day in, day out, making all of this content possible. A shout out as well to our friends at Tennis Point, tennis-point.com. Promo code is CR15. All that said, just a reminder, ITA kickoff weekend broadcast this weekend. Fill your tennis fix. Enjoy some extraordinary college tennis happening across the country. will be Friday, Saturday, Sunday, maybe even Monday as well over on our Crack Rackets YouTube feed. But with all that said, for my fantastic super producer, Daniel Westoff, our friends at Tennis Point, and from all of us here at both Crack Rackets and the Tennis Channel Podcast Network, I am your host, Alex Gruskin. You know what we say. That's the break, and we'll talk to you all tomorrow. Thanks, everyone. mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com.